we have been working our way through a series of messages over the last seven weeks where we've been talking about restoration. And as we're doing this, we're talking about the identity of the church, kind of the, the purpose of the church. What is God's unique kind of fingerprint for this place that we call Peachtree, this community, this movement that we're trying to be a part of God's presence in the world? And so we've been walking through what a group of people on your behalf spent the better part of a year working on. There was a group of people that are from the church, staff, elders, lay people all together, and and they worked for the better part of a year just exploring five questions, what one kind of management guru calls the irreducible questions of leadership. What are we doing? Why are we doing? Uh, How are we doing it? Uh, When are we successful? And where are we going? And so we've been talking about answers to these different questions and kind of how they're rooted in Scripture and what do they mean, what's the implication for us as a church. Uh, and then the first week, we talk about what are we doing. We've been talking about kind of what's our collective calling, what's our mission. Um, just as every single one of you has a unique calling for your life, a unique vocation and a purpose for your life, God has that for us as a community as a whole as well. That, Um, Every organization, every community has a mission, whether it's stated or not. Google has a mission. Did you know that? Google's mission is to organize the world's information and to make it universally uh, accessible to people. Um, uh, Disney has a mission. Disney's mission is to create happiness with the finest of entertainment for all people everywhere. Uh, Facebook has a mission. Facebook's mission is to bring the world closer together by selling your personal information to people that you didn't want to give it to. (laughs) Every organization has a mission. And the question is whether or not are you faithful to that mission? Is it the right mission? Is it the right purpose? And for us at Peachtree, for us, because we're under orders of the Lord Jesus Christ, we talk about our, our great permission within the Great Commission, that we got to go to the garden of God's Word. We got to excavate and look at the history of our church and where we think that God's taking us. And in doing so, we um, unearthed what we thought was kind of our articulation, our way of getting to participate of what God's doing and glorifying and making disciples. Our way of putting it is this, is that we are joining Christ daily in the restoration of all things. Will you say that with me? Joining Christ daily in the restoration of all things. And then after talking about Um, mission. We talked about how there was this analogy of making bricks, building a wall, building a cathedral, that even if you felt called to build a cathedral and someone else felt called to build a cathedral, if you had different motives, if you had different priorities, those two cathedrals would look different from one another. And so those are called values. They're not the things that you do, but they're these kind of underlying things that animate everything that you do. We've identified we have a lot of priorities, a lot of values in a place like this, but we've tried to identify our top three. And our top three are unexpected togetherness, gentle reverence, and disruptive compassion. Unexpected togetherness because the gospel brings everyone to the table. Gentle reverence because the gospel requires both grace and truth. And disruptive compassion because the gospel changes us all for good. These three things are what are kind of a distinct expression of the kingdom of God in our hearts, in our minds here at the church. And so we don't talk about, you know, hey, here's our, you know, here's our gentle reverence department in the church or anything like that. We just expect the ministries that are a part of Peachtree to kind of express and reflect these characteristics. 
that we expect disruptive compassion to be as much of a part of our children's ministry as it is a part of our missions department, and that we expect gentle reverence to be here in the sanctuary, but we expect that to be in the small group that you meet with or the Sunday school class that you're a part of. So those are values. They're like the rings of a tree that if you cut the tree, you would see each of those things that would be present underneath. And then we talked about last week, we had Will here, and he talked about our strategy, the big how that he talked about. I mean, you have this lofty, beautiful thing, joining Christ daily and the restoration of all things. How does somebody get involved with something like that? Well, we talked about our ministry map and how we can take three steps to do that. Behold and worship, belong to a community, and become on a journey. And we'll just briefly introduce this to you. There's a whole lot more that's to be said to drill down, to explain. I promise you, we're going to come back to strategy and not just have an introduction, but talk about what are the implications? What is this going to look like for us as we start to live our life of faith together? And then there's this next question that we're going to turn ourselves to. And uh, in this question, what we're, what we're looking at is when are we successful? Or maybe more succinctly is who are, who are we becoming if we are faithful with this mission. And I want to begin today by telling you when I had a major aha moment on this. This is where I went to school. It's called Trinity University. It's a liberal arts and pre-professional school in San Antonio, Texas. And uh, not only did I go to Trinity, but I've been involved with Trinity for a long time since then. I've been 12 years as a board of trustee member there. I mean, I've seen presidents come and go, faculty come and go, staff come and go. But there's a group of us that are trying to further the legacy of this school. And I, you got to know, I love everything about getting to go to the trustee meetings, getting to uh, connect with people who are in a variety of different industries, and yet we all pull together for the sake of the, the mission of the school. But I got to tell you, there's one thing that I really hate as a trustee, and it's called the accreditation process. It is the most tedious mind-numbing, making you want to scream and run from the room thing that I've ever been a part of. And so as a trustee, I love going, and then they're like, okay, we need to talk about accreditation. And so I was like, oh. And so you just start to get in the weeds, and you're walking through all of the, you invite this group of people to come from outside, to come into your business, and they are just kind of making you walk through all of this different stuff. And I got to confess that when I'm in the meeting and it's accreditation time, you know the voice in the Snoopy cartoons where it's like the teacher that's wah, 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 in the background? That's me. Like, I am just kind of checked out. Some of you may be experiencing that right now, and that's okay. I'm, I'm just kind of checked out. And, uh, and I am not paying attention. I'm thinking of like, can I feign an illness? Is there anything I can do to get out of this? And all of a sudden, the, the woman up front kind of shifts in the conversation and she says something that makes me sit up in my chair. She said this, she said, long gone are the days in a university where you could judge your success by what you offer because now it's about what kind of outcomes are you producing? I was kind of intrigued and she went on. She said, it used to be that you judge the success of a university by looking at the course bulletin, all the different classes that you offered, or all the different student activity kind of variety that you had, or all of these different services that you have. We don't judge success by that anymore. We judge success now. What kind of impact are you making in the life of a student? So the real question of a university, she said, is what kind of students are you creating? What kind of students are you producing? 
Now I've got my notebook out, I'm starting to take notes because this is starting to resonate with a frustration that I've started to have about the church. Then in the church for a long time, we've judged success by just kind of, we have these services, we have these programs, we have these classes, we have all these different kinds of offerings. And there's this little hunger in me as a church leader, I'm like there has to be more. That can't be what it's all about. And so she's continuing to talk about these things. And the, the scripture that's floating to mind for me is when Jesus says, you know, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And you know how Jesus talks about, you know, this is how you will know my disciples by their love for one another. That what Jesus was particularly passionate about was that he was packing about the impact that he was making on the lives of his followers. That they were becoming the kind of people that he had in mind as he was training them up in his ways. And so this woman was uh, continuing in the process and she was saying, she was saying, you know, look, your mission is only as good as what you measure. And what you tend to measure, you will pay attention to as a university. And sitting there thinking, your mission is only as good as your measure. What do we tend to measure in the church? You know what we tend to measure in the church? Three things. The ABCs, attendance, buildings, and cash. Or the Baptist iteration of this is butts, baptism, and budgets. How many butts and seats came? How many baptisms were there? And how big are the budgets? That's how churches tend to measure. And the reason that we tend to measure these things is because they're easy to measure. They're easy for us to be able to determine that that's what happened. But you know, just because something's easy to measure doesn't mean that it is what we're really supposed to be measuring. And so there was this little bit of holy rage that started to fill me for the ways that we've been doing church. Because here's the deal. I don't think I'm going to get to heaven one day and Jesus is going to say, okay, Rich, let's talk about Palm Sunday attendance 2018. I just don't think that's a conversation we're going to have. But do you know what I think we will talk about? Rich, let's talk about the kinds of disciples that you helped to nurture. The kinds of students of me that you tried to fashion into my image. I do think that we'll have that conversation. It's the kind of thing that keeps your pastor up at night as I think about these things. And so there's a part of me that says that we have to get to the point where we say enough. Enough with the focus on the offerings and how many people came. And can we agree that what God really cares about, who you're becoming, who I'm becoming, what kind of people are we becoming? What does success look like for us at Peachtree? I think we need to start measuring some other things. I think we need to start holding ourselves accountable to some other things. I think we need to start paying attention. If our mission really is in joining Christ daily in the restoration of all things, do you think you can actually get to that mission by measuring attendance, buildings, and cash? I don't think that you can. I think we're going to have to ask ourselves, what does a life that joins Christ daily look like? What does a life that is being restored actually look like? 
Well, let's pay attention to what that answer might be. The people that worked on your behalf came up with four criteria of a disciple. A disciple is someone who's becoming more grateful, more available, more curious, and more encouraging. A life of grace. Also, it's easier to understand these things sometimes if you understand what they're not. And so, are you becoming more grateful instead of entitled? Are you becoming more available instead of hurried? Are you becoming more curious instead of self-centered? Are you becoming more encouraging instead of critical? I don't know about you, but when I look at this slide, I want to, I'm motivated. I want to become more like that life of grace because I think that's what God has in store for me. And so if you'll bear with me today, what I'd like to do is just just to give you an introduction to dip our toes in the water of what does a life of grace look like? Just like what I promised with strategy, I promised we're going to return to that. We're going to return to this, but let me just give you kind of the 15-minute overview of this. And if you're looking at your bulletin and you see the scriptures that are listed there, you're like, there's no way this sermon is 15-minute long. I promise you we're going to touch on all those scriptures, but we're not going to drill down really deep on them. These are four little portraits of a life of grateful, available, curious, and encouraging. I'd love you to take a few notes because this is not just any old message. This is a roadmap for us and kind of how we're moving ahead. Consider this to be your accreditation report for you as a disciple, as a student of Jesus. So first, let's talk about grateful. Great little story in the Gospel of Luke, 17th chapter, where Jesus is walking along the road, comes outside of a city, and there are 10 lepers because the lepers aren't allowed in the city. They can't even get close to Jesus. They have to yell, unclean. They have to get off the road if anybody is coming in the other direction. And they beg Jesus from a distance to heal them. And Jesus agrees to heal them, and he tells them that they need to show themselves to the priest. And the reason for that is that when you were a leper, you had to get clearance from a priest in order to be restored back to society. And so while they are making their way towards the priest, they are miraculously healed. Nine of them keep going. One of them turns around, comes back, falls down at Jesus' feet, and thanks him, the text says. And Jesus asked, where were the other nine? Were not ten healed, cleansed? The point of the encounter is rare is the person who is actually grateful and expresses it. Gratitude is not just kind of a mood. Gratitude is an act of praise that you do with your life. It was rare, and that one person as a Samaritan turned around and came back to give Jesus the praise, and he was grateful for what had been done for him. We live in an entitled age where everybody feels like they're owed something, that they have earned something, and yet the gospel starts with grace. It starts with the sense of gratitude that God has done for you something that you cannot do for yourself. And the question for us is, are we really grateful for that? 
Last week, a group of us from the church were in the Middle East, and there was a big group of us on tour, and then there was a smaller group of us that continued on that tour into the country of Jordan. And there in Jordan, we got connected to a classmate of seminary of mine. Uh, Kelly and I had a classmate friend by the name of Darren Kennedy. And while we were uh, there, he came on the bus with us and talked to us about what is, what is life like as a Middle Eastern Christian? He's a professor of theology at the Evangelical Seminary of Cairo. This is a longstanding ministry partner of Peachtree. Your offering dollars helps to do scholarship money for students at the Evangelical Seminary in Cairo, where they have a mission of raising Christian leaders in the Middle East. And so we're there, we're interfacing with Darren, and he's talking about what it's like to be a Christian in that part of the world. Even though there's more Christians in Egypt than in any other part of the Middle East, their lives are still really hard. They experience levels of persecution, and those levels of persecution have gone up since the Arab Spring, the uprising of 2011. For some Egyptian Christians, this is their reality. This is a picture of a Coptic church in Egypt that is being burned. And can you imagine what it was like to have your congregation attacked and burned in this way? Can you imagine what it would be like to show up the next day and that this is all that you could see? And yet their response to what had been done to them was not anger, but rejoicing. Here's a picture of Egyptian Christians worshiping in their burned sanctuary right after it happened. The pastor, with joy, said, they can burn our buildings, they cannot take away our praise. They're grateful. We live in a consumer society where it rains a little bit and we go, I don't know whether I'm gonna go to church. Contrast that with those Christians. They have no furniture in the building. It's been torched, yet they're grateful. Are you more grateful or are you more entitled on your little accreditation report? Second one uh, has to do with availability. Are you available or are you more hurried? Another great little story and vignette picture in the Gospel of Luke, and this is a story of Mary and Martha. Uh, Mary and Martha are hosting Jesus in the home, and there's lots of preparations that need to be done. Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet. Martha's running around like a chicken with her head cut off, and she's going crazy. She's getting mad at Mary for not helping her, and so she comes over in front of the whole room, kind of one of those awkward conversation killers where, where she says, Jesus, tell, tell Mary to get over here and help me. And Jesus is like, Martha, Martha, you're, you're worried, you're distracted by all these many things. Only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the better part. You have to ask yourself, are you more like Mary or are you more like Martha? Are you running around like crazy in a hurried, frantic frenzy? Or are you more like Jesus? Truth be told, your pastor, I spend a lot more time working for Jesus than I do spending time with Jesus. It's a growing edge for me. Sabbath is probably the top 10 commandment that I break most frequently. And I think that that's not just true of me, I think that's true and reflective of our culture. 
And because of that, we lose our availability to God and to others. This is an image of a guy by the name of Benjamin Wills. Got to meet Benjamin uh, about a year ago now. And uh, he runs what's known as the Peace Prep Academy. Jay and I have had, Pastor Jay and I have had a chance to tour Peace Prep and to tour the neighborhood down at English Avenue. This is one of the hardest areas, most impoverished, under-resourced areas that's in the shadow of Mercedes-Benz Stadium. And yet it's a place of real struggle. And Benjamin is trying to create this little beachhead for kids of a holistic Christian education for them and their families. One of the things that Benjamin said to me, I'll never forget, he said, you know, Rich, when we were going through civil rights, um, Atlanta was known as the city that was too busy to hate. But he said, you know what else might be true? Atlanta might also be the city that's too busy to care. Too busy to care. And as soon as he said that, I knew it was true. The kind of the shadow side of our entrepreneurial spirit as a city is that we're in such a frenzy that we're not really available to what God's doing. How is the margin in your life? Are you the kind of person that can be interrupted? Are you available to God, to the Holy Spirit, and to the people around you. You know, these kinds of things are really hard to measure, but they're not impossible to measure. I could probably talk to your spouse and find out if you're available or not, emotionally and otherwise. I could probably talk to a colleague at work and they could tell you whether or not you live with a spirit of gratitude. These things are hard to measure, but they're not impossible. They're just qualitative, not quantitative. So there's grateful, there's available, and then there's curious. This one requires a little more explanation as an attribute. Are you curious or are you self-centered? Jesus asks a lot of questions. There's a scholar that has way too much free time on his hands, and he's actually counted. Jesus asked 307 questions in the New Testament Gospels. He also found out that people asked Jesus 183 questions in the Gospels. And then you find out, depending on which scholar you talk to, because they can't agree on this, uh, Jesus answers directly somewhere between three and eight of those questions. It kind of reminds me of the old adage about the Jewish rabbi. Why does the Jewish rabbi always answer a question with a question? And the answer is, why shouldn't a rabbi always answer a question <laughs> with a question? But I actually think that Jesus is not engaged in some sort of kind of rhetorical Jedi trick to try to, to try to, you know, kind of trick people or anything along those lines. I don't think that's what's going on. I think it's deeper than that. I actually think that what Jesus is doing in these moments is that he actually cares, that he wants to draw close, that he wants you and I to grow. He wants us to be shaped. He wants to, us to wrestle with it for ourselves. I think he's relationally curious. I think he's intellectually curious as to what others think. Jesus asks a lot of questions. This is pretty amazing when you think about the Lord and God of all asking questions. Jesus, Lord of all, walking up to two people who are walking along the side of the road, the road to Emmaus, and saying, hey, what are you two guys talking about? Or Jesus, Lord of all, walking up to someone and, and saying to them, do you have something to eat? 
Jesus, Lord of all, walking up to someone and saying, where is your husband? Jesus, Lord of all, walking up to someone and saying, has no one condemned you? Where are your accusers? Jesus, Lord of all, walking up to someone and saying, by your worry, can you add one single hour to the span of your life? Jesus, Lord of all, saying, why do you doubt? Jesus, Lord of all, asking question after question after question. And some of those questions are kind of information questions, and some of those questions get more, far more probing than that. Some of those questions are haunting. Jesus hanging on the cross, asking a question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Two of the most kind of famous questions that Jesus asks are in a moment when he's with the disciples, and in Luke chapter 9, he says, hey, who do the crowds say that I am? What's the hashtag Jesus Messiah trending right now? They say some this, some that, and then he says, who do you say that I am? Not just an interesting question, that's an important question. That's a personal question. That's a penetrating question. Who do you say that I am, Jesus asks. C.S. Lewis says that if you were to run into a truly humble person, you would not walk away from the encounter saying, that was a truly humble person. What you might walk away with is that idea, that notion that that person took an extraordinary interest in you. So let me boil this down by putting it this way. Are you spending more time trying to be interesting to other people or are you spending more time being interested by them? How do you spend your energy in your life? Are you trying to manage impressions and trying to be interesting to them or are you willing to be interested in other people? Let me put it this way. In your life with God, maybe you've been a part of a church for a whole long time, maybe you're not very curious about God anymore. You don't seek him in his word. You feel like you know it all. How is your life of curiosity with God? There's a hospital chaplain in South Carolina. Her name's Carrie Egan. And, and she reports on some of the research that's, that's kind of strange that's come up these days. The conventional wisdom was that if you if you were in your marriage and you made it to the empty, through the empty nester kind of intro, that your marriage was almost statistically no way that it would fall apart. Did you know that the, the biggest growth category in divorce in the United States is through senior adults? People who have been married for 20, 30, 40, even 50 years, that's the fastest growing divorce category in the United States. It's kind of strange. Um, as someone who works with a lot of senior adults, Carrie Egan put it this way. Perhaps the death knell of love is not anger or indifference. It's losing the desire to know more about your partner. It is not lack of love that ends long-term relationships. It's a lack of curiosity. Being curious is one of the most important qualities in following and reflecting our rabbi. Are you curious or are you self-centered? Grateful, available, curious, and last one here, encouraging. We live in a critical time. And as ramped up as that might be right now, it wasn't any different for the lifetime of Jesus. Every time Jesus is around, like, healing somebody or restoring somebody, like in Luke chapter 19, when Jesus restores Zacchaeus back to community, 
the people immediately begin to murmur and to complain and to criticize what Jesus is doing. It's a constant of what's going on. Do you spend more time complaining about the political system, let me ask, than you do engaging in the common civic life? What would it be like for us as a community if Peachtree was known as a place where we rejected criticism and instead we encouraged one another, built one another up? What would that be like? Do you think our world needs communities who are committed to that? One of the greatest stories in the last couple of weeks is this story. How many of you are rooting for Loyola? Huh? You're rooting for Loyola? Just unbelievable, you know, Cinderella story, 11th seed. Back in 1963, they actually won the national championship, this little Jesuit school in Chicago. And even better than just the basketball story is their chaplain, 98-year-old Sister Jean. How do you not love Sister Jean with her like Harry Potter, uh, Potter Gryffindor scarf kind of around her neck at all times? And she's just this remarkable woman. I love the fact that they were, I mean, she's had so many interviews lately. They said, have you been following the news? She was like, following the news? I'm too busy to be in the news to watch the news. Um, she's this spunky lady. It's fantastic. And um, she said that she prays for both teams, but truth be told, she probably prays for her team more than the other team. Just love. Uh, and I mean, here's some of the, um, you know, just, you know, kind of the pictures that you see. I mean, Here's Sister Jean after one of their victories, and they all hug her after the game, and you just want to say, no, Sister Jean, don't do it. Make him shower first. Like, it's disgusting, but she doesn't care. She just wants to grab these men up in her arms and celebrate them and lift them up, cheer them on. I love what she says. She says things like this. If you don't have confidence and faith, then you might as well not be playing. She says, whether we win or lose, God is still with us. She says, I just think everybody is a celebrity in his or her own way. No matter what we're doing, if we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, then each one of us is a celebrity, each one bright in the eyes of God. And I don't know that Nike's approved this message, but I love this meme that's certain around the internet right now. <laughs> just absolutely fantastic. Air Jean. Who wouldn't buy a t-shirt with Air Jean on it? That's just wonderful. Maybe we as Christians ought to ask a little more, what would Jean do? Because she's reflecting the character of Christ. Not perfectly, but she's reflecting the character of Christ in a critical age. There's a little part of me that wants to figure out, how do I age like that? How do I become like that? How do you get to 98 and be a fountain of encouragement in a time when everybody's critical of everybody? How are you doing on your accreditation report? Grateful, available, curious, encouraging? What kind of student of Jesus are you becoming? And you might be asking yourself, what does this have to do with Palm Sunday? Well, let me tell you, about a week ago, 
There's a group of us making our way down off the Mount of Olives, following what they call the Palm Sunday route, following in the footsteps of Jesus. And you know, there's a lot of things that have changed in 2,000 years, and there's a lot of things that haven't. There were 87 of us marching in the footsteps of Jesus, but the road was filled with all kinds of other pilgrims. There were even some palm branches, people singing songs, lots of people cheering. And as we're making our way down the mountain, I just can't help but think there were a lot of crowds in Jesus' day. But Jesus wasn't there to cater to the crowds. He was there to invest in people with his costly love and sacrifice. Because the crowds are fickle. The crowds will cheer him on when it suits their cause. But the very same crowd that was cheering him on, right on King Jesus, Hosanna, is the very same crowd that on Friday that will yell, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. As Kyle Eidelman puts it well, are we fans of Jesus? Or are we followers? I want to become more of a follower of Jesus. I don't want to just be an enthusiastic admirer. I actually want to become more like him. I want to be covered in the dust of my rabbi. I want to become more grateful, available, curious, and encouraging in my own life. And I want to stop judging the church on the basis of how many people came and all of that stuff. We got to do it, but it's not what's most important. What if we started paying attention to who you and I are becoming, what we're really like from the inside out? That's the kind of church I want to pastor. It's the kind of church I want to be a part of. I think it's the kind of church that, that God cares about, saying, become like this. And so let's pray. Forgive us, God, for measuring the wrong things. for neglecting the things that really matter. And God, will you infuse within us by your spirit and power, will you give us more gratitude, availability, curiosity, and encouragement from when we walked in? Change us, God. Transform us inwardly, and give us long years to reflect your character. Help us to reorient this church, God, around your priorities and what it means to join you daily, to be restored. And Lord, may that restoration project begin within us before we try to impose it upon others. It's help us to do our own little accreditation audit so that we might become more and more like your son. <laughs>